0: It is good to see you here this morning. Thankful you've chosen to be with us at Midway. We want you to know that you're welcome here. Invite like you to be with us at every opportunity that you possibly have. As we begin this election cycle, no, let me change that. As we end this election cycle, I want to remind you of something sometimes that you see. Maybe you've seen this guy up here. Uh, he says, holding a sign, got his long hand, everything, says the end is near. You've probably seen that in cartoons along the way, different ones using that. Maybe you have seen some people standing on the side of the road with signs like that. And perhaps they even favored this guy. I don't know. It doesn't really make any difference. But this particular cartoon came out four years ago. It, it's not new. It's been here at least four years. But, but this guy has the sign, the his is new. Here's a couple that goes walking by and they say, Good, I'm glad the election is almost over. You know, I'm ready for it. And that's the way I think that a lot of folks feel that we're looking forward to the day that the election is over. Maybe you'd like to have one of these bumper stickers. It says, I'm sick of politics, and I approve this message. You know, you hear that at the end of the political statements that are made, the the commercials that are made. And so, you know, I'm sick of politics, and I approve this message. Well. As you think about that, folks are suffering from what we might call political fatigue, and some folks are suffering from political burnout. And thinking about that, the good news is that the election is almost over. But it's sort of like one guy that I read his writing. He says, "Well, it's good that the election is almost over, but the bad thing about it is, is one of the candidates is going to win." And that's pretty much the way that sometimes we feel. On a serious note this morning, it really seems that in this particular presidential election in particular that our choices are quite troublesome. No matter which which, uh, side you look at, there are some troubling things that, that you can find. And many have... Lamented over the candidates and thought about it and wondered how in the world am I going to choose? They they thought about the candidates and says um, uh, about the ones that we have to choose in this election that I don't think I can vote for either one of them. And then there are some who who said that well I just don't think I'm going to be able to vote at all because I can't vote for either one. I'm just not going to vote at all. But folks, if we do choose to vote in this election, on what basis should our decisions be made? Is it based on a political party? We just go and we vote for the political party that we've always voted for. Is it based on the candidate themselves and the character of the candidate? Is it based on something else that we need to look at and we need to think about it. So how is it that we make our, and if you noticed I didn't misspell that, how is it that we make our decisions in 2016? That was the title that we gave this particular lesson this morning. How is it that we can do just that over the next few minutes? We want to spend some time reflecting on that, thinking about it, And doing that from the standpoint of of God's Word and how it is that we would make a a, a decision in this election, in the next election, and any election that would come forward, how is it that we make our decisions, and in particular in 2016? There are some things that I want us to think about this morning. Number one, there has never been a perfect candidate for any political office. Now you think about that one pretty seriously for a moment. There has never been a perfect candidate for any political office. Jesus never ran for a political office. There has never been a perfect candidate for any political office. You see, if you're looking for a perfect candidate, you are out of luck. Every candidate that has ever won in any election... In our country, or in any other country, has had some flaw in his or her character. Now granted, some flaws are worse than others, but there has never been a perfect candidate for any political office. That's just a fact. Jesus never ran for political office. But that brings me to my my next thought, and that's simply this. Does imperfection automatically disqualify one from being a political leader? You see, we have to answer that question as well. Since, Since we're looking for perhaps sometimes what we might call the perfect candidate, and there's never been one of those... Or if we look and we see that there are some major flaws within the character of the person or persons, whoever it is that is running, whatever year it may be, does that automatically disqualify the person from being a political leader? Now there are some verses that we need to consider. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, at verse number 12, the Bible says that it is an abomination for kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Whatever one who is in a political office, or as the writer writes here, Solomon writes in the Proverbs, that it is it's an abomination for a king to, to do evil, to, to practice evil, to be evil, uh, he is saying something that's true, but in the, in the office that he holds, indeed, he, he is one who, who, who cannot sustain a nation that uh, is far, pushed forward into unrighteousness. It's righteousness that continues to make the nation, or, or whatever it is, great. In the book of Proverbs, chapter twenty-nine, at verse number two, the Bible says, "When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Whenever those who uh, they're those who push their wicked agendas and ideas, people are hurt, and they're hurt quite badly because of the things that that sometimes folks do." Remember, when these passages were written, they, they were written in regard to kings and to judges and so forth of that day. But I want you to think with me this morning about a particular king. I want you to consider for just a moment King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights... We've been talking about him and his nation, the Babylonians, for quite some time as we've studied through the minor prophets. In the book of Jeremiah, there is quite a bit that's said in regard to him. But, but would it be fair to call this man uh, a cold-hearted, heartless, prideful, arrogant man? And if you know anything whatsoever about King Nebuchadnezzar, you'd have to agree, yes, but let me just show you a few things from the Word of God that the Bible has to say about this particular man. Notice, if you will, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, if you begin reading in verse number 21, you're going to find some things that the Bible has to say uh, about this guy. He says, This says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Maaseah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Here's some false prophets, mind you. He says, Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he will strike them down before your eyes. King Nebuchadnezzar is going to take care of the false prophets that are prophesying wrongly. And it's not that that I want you to see. I I think God um, is doing the delivering. There's no doubt in my mind God's the one who's giving that, that he's going to deliver these false prophets into the hand of the king. But it's what the king does to them. It's his prerogative, how he's going to punish them. God is just delivering them into his hand. What kind of man is Nebuchadnezzar? And we can see that in the way that he treats his prisoners. Verse, the next verse, verse number twenty-two. He says, "Because of them, this curse, or uh, yeah, this curse, shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in his fire." Here was a king who was putting them to death, but he burned them alive. And you can go on into verse number 23, and he says it's because of the outrageous things that they had taught, the things that they had done, in prophesying against uh, the things that were true, the things that were right. He roasted them in the fire. Now we're more familiar with three other guys that Nebuchadnezzar was wanting to do the same to. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God didn't allow that to happen to these three. I believe as we see the passage unfold, the Son of Man, Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, came and was with them and kept them from being roasted in the fire. What kind of person does it take? What kind of heart does it take to roast somebody in a fire. You see, that wasn't the only punishment that he would inflict upon his adversaries. If you go to the book of Second Kings, chapter twenty-five, verses one through twenty-one, we don't have time to read it. We read about King Zedekiah in the New Testament, in, in, in not the New Testament, but in the Old uh, uh, in Jerusalem before they were taken into captivity. One of the things that the Babylonians were good at doing was inflicting punishment. One of the ways they did that, and you've heard me talk about this on Wednesday nights, is that they would take a person, they would take his family, or someone who was close to them, and they would force that person to watch as his family was tortured, put to death. And then immediately following that, They would blind that person. They would put their eyes out. The last thing that they would see, literally, was the punishment, the torture, the death of those who were closest to them. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did to King Zedekiah. He inflicted much pain on him in that way. What kind of person does that? We can read in the book of Daniel, chapter four, of the pride of King Nebuchadnezzar. God would cause him to to wander in the pastures and eat grass until he finally understood that God was in control and not him. We read about his pride, but I want you to notice what he said. In Daniel chapter 4, verse number 27 in particular, the Bible says there, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Daniel is telling him what he needs to do. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see... Nebuchadnezzar was a prosperous king. He did quite a bit in the short time that the Babylonian kingdom was uh, in existence. But Daniel says, You've got some sins and you've got some iniquities that you need to straighten out. We don't know a lot about the personal life, but it seems that as that is, Daniel is confronting him, he not only has the pride that he is to repent of, the arrogance that he has, and the unmerciful nature that he has in regard to his enemies and, and those who would come against him, he was quite likely an immoral person in a lot of other ways as well. That's what the Bible has to say in regard to this man, this king, that, that he is by far an imperfect person and yet, When you turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse number 9, you read these words, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Did you catch it? I said it slowly. And next blank is, God referred to the king of Babylon as my servant. And that's not the only passage in which God refers to King Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. Let's go to chapter twenty-seven at verse number six. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And there are other passages as well. But let me call your attention to another one. Uh, look at Ezekiel chapter twenty-nine in verses eighteen through twenty. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was rubbed bare. And neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it. And it shall be wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored because... They worked for me, declares the Lord. My servant. God said he is working for me. This this arrogant, prideful, immoral, unmerciful king, God said is my servant. God said he's working for me. Pretty strong, isn't it? One of Nebuchadnezzar's problems was that he thought he was doing everything, but God had to remind him no, it's not you, it's me. I'm in control. You know, if I listen to some of the things that have been posted on Facebook and other places like that, I'd have to conclude that because God used this man as his servant and paid him for it, that God's a sinner. How can that be? There is no unrighteousness in God. He has never done one thing wrong. You see, there has never been a perfect candidate. And it seems that ungodliness does not necessarily disqualify one from being a political leader. If you read the book of Habakkuk, which we just finished on Wednesday nights and studying from the minor prophets, Habakkuk couldn't couldn't understand for a while how that God would use somebody more wicked than the people that he was punishing to punish them. God basically said, don't worry about it, I've got it under control. I understand and they will get theirs and it won't be good. But God is still... In control. You see, God can and does use even wicked people to rule in the, in the kingdoms of men. That's just a fact. That's what history and the Bible itself teaches us. But then that brings us to another idea, another point that we need to explore because that hasn't really told us all that we need to know yet want us to understand that governments, you see, they have a purpose, they've been assigned a purpose from God. Now all of us remember what is said in the book of Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse number 1, he speaks about how that every person is to be, uh, be subject to the governing authorities. And there's no authority that's been given except from God. He goes on down, and, and for the sake of time this morning, I want you to look at verse number four. Romans thirteen, verse number four. We'll put it on the screen. He's still talking about that that civil civil government, and he says, for he or it, depending upon which translation you're reading from, he or it. English Standard Version says he, for he is God's servant. Now just as Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant in the Old Testament, or at least one of God's servants in the Old Testament. The Bible says that the the civil government is God's servant. But what is the assigned purpose? Look at verse number 4. Continue reading there. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid and so forth. And he goes on and, and deals with those things. He is God's servant for your good. There is more than one word in the New Testament in the original languages that's translated good. More than one word. This particular word comes from a word which is used in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. In John chapter 5, especially in verse 29, in speaking about the resurrection of the dead, he says, they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, as you look at that, we have little trouble understanding that good is put in, in uh, uh, contradiction to unrighteousness. It, it's put in contrast to unrighteousness. Good. There's another passage in which that term is used, that same word is used. Romans chapter 12 verse 21, do not, overcome, be, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse number 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it be good or evil. You see that word good, that's Translated good here in Romans chapter 13 at verse four. It means to have uh, to, to, to be good, not just in a general sense, but it comes from the word which we read in the New Testament, it has the same root as the word which we read that's translated holy. Hagathos. The word holy is hagios. He is God's servant for your good. He's God's servant for your good. You see, the leader may not be good, but his role is is to make it possible for his citizens to be good or godly that's his role he's not saying necessarily that the ruler is good he makes it possible for you to be good and godly he murdered his first wife and his mother Before murdering his mother, he had an incestuous relationship with his mother. He had an incestuous relationship with his brother. He slept with a number of beautiful young women. He also had a relationship with many older men in a physical way. It is said that he fastened young boys and girls to posts. And that after adorning himself with the hide of an animal, a wild animal, that he would attack the young boys and girls. And that he literally would eat flesh, bite the flesh from the young boys and girls as they were tied to a post. He was extravagant in many ways. Even his fishing nets were threaded with pure gold. There are a number of things that he did to satisfy his own brutal lusts. His name was Nero, the emperor of Rome. And Nero reigned from 54 to 68 A.D. The book of Romans was written somewhere between 56 and 58 A.D. Did you catch that? This brutal, ungodly man of the worst and basest sort. It's said by God in Romans chapter 13, which was written during His reign to people who were living in His city, not just in His empire, in His city, that He is my servant for your good. There were a lot of bad things that Nero did didn't turn the empire to God. And he even made it hard for Christians to live. But he was still there so that they could be holy. You know, a lot of times... It's not necessarily that we're to be as much concerned with a candidate's character as we are with his or her agenda. Where are they going to take us? Is his or her agenda that which is for good, that makes it possible for us to be agathos and holy and good? There's a major political philosophy in our nation that's come from many different sources and it has grown to epidemic proportions. And that is this. God's not the creator. And there's no God who can make permanent rules. Because of that, man is the only judge and he's free from any absolute standard. And he can make his own choices. And government is the most important provider in that. And everyone pretty much is free to do what's right in his or her own eyes. And really and truly the only vice that one can be guilty of is judging another and saying that what they're doing is wrong. And government is also a force for social engineering and that without any absolute boundaries whatsoever. Government is there to provide rather than to protect. Fairness, as we see it, is the goal. And that we can put in quotation marks. Fairness is the goal since there's no such thing as an absolute standard of right or wrong. Abortion's acceptable. Homosexuality is acceptable. Even when it comes to abortion, even what's been dubbed late-term abortions, even up to the minute that a child is born, is acceptable. I could go on and on and on, but you live in the society too. Those who believe in God are radical and intolerant because they have standards and they must be dealt with. What's the agenda? Whether the person is good and godly and upright or not, where do they want to take us? in our country folks there's a difference in agenda with our candidates even in this election one has vowed to appoint supreme court justices that will ensure that ungodliness prevails the other one has promised not to that at least gives us some hope for fighting chance, for righteousness. Indeed, we're left with troublesome choices. May I add one or two more things before we close our lesson today? What about first Timothy chapter two, verses one through three? We're to pray for our leaders, no doubt about that. Paul makes that clear first of all. Then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. You may see on the screen that I have it in yellow, that we, what are we praying for? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, Life godly and dignified. You see, sometimes our prayer is not for a godly candidate for but for us that we can be godly, that it will allow his or her agenda will allow us to be godly. And what is said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is quite consistent with what we read in the book of Romans chapter 13 at verse number 4. I want us to remember that God rules in the kingdoms of men. And ultimately it will be God who will choose our next president and our next leaders in our nation. However, in our case, Unlike many in years gone by, in our case, God works through the free choices of millions of people. He's allowed us to have a say in what we want or who we want as a leader. As Christians, we have the responsibility to influence our society. We talked about in our class this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. We are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, it's not good for anything except to throw it in the driveway. And salt, as we think about salt, then it was so valuable to the people of that day. They would understand that very clearly. It wasn't just to uh, set on the table. It preserved the things that they had in their uh, so that they would be able to eat. They preserved meat and things of that nature. But you can set some salt on a table. You can put a fifty-pound sack of salt. Stand it over in the corner somewhere and the salt shaker on your table does not change the flavor of your food and the 50 pound sack sitting in a sack not touching and not contacting the food that it is to preserve will do absolutely nothing to preserve it. We're the salt that is to make the difference. And if you notice, keep going, we're the light of the world as well. The Bible, is being read this morning, also teaches us that we are to render to Caesars the things that are Caesars, and to God the things that are God's. He's talking about taxes as he has been asked a question, but in our day and time we've been given by our Caesar, by our government, the ability to make a statement and make a choice. We have to make the right one to the best of our ability. Again, before we close, let me let me just say this, and I know that I've said that a couple of times already this morning, but what if we still can't bring ourselves to to make a choice and to vote even? Let me just remind us of what is said in the book of Romans, chapter number 14, verse 23. There the apostle Paul writes and says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because... The eating is not from faith, for whatever he does, uh, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If we can't, with a good conscience, based on what we find here in this book, do what we need to do, then we better stay home. But how can we say we are salt if we do? But we also must remember what's said in the first four verses of the book of Romans chapter 14. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We don't have time to deal with Romans chapter 14 in great detail this morning, but simply observe this. Whether you choose to or you choose not to, in this case, he's talking about eating food, different kinds, vegetables as opposed to meat. Whether you choose to or you choose not to, you'll still answer to God for it. And in this case, He says, it's not within our prerogative to break fellowship with the one who either does or doesn't. What's the point? If we choose to do nothing, we'll answer to God. If we choose to vote, we'll answer to God. No doubt about it. We have to make our choices based here. And hopefully this morning as we've looked at just a little bit of God's Word in relation to this, it'll help us as we think through the next couple of days so that we can make choices, make decisions in accordance with the Word of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that there's one great decision that you need to make, and that is to become a Christian. We're here for you. We want to we wanna help you. Maybe you need to know more. We'd love to sit down with you and study more with you about what to do in order to become a Christian and how to live as a Christian. If you know that you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins today based on the faith that you have that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, why wait any longer? Maybe you're here today and and your life's not right with God, and you know it, and you need to come back to Him, why don't you do that right now? As together we stand and sing.